When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Rockneycast. Welcome to episode four of the Rockneycast. Today I'm going to be joined by Greg Johnson, and today we're going to discuss the struggle and promise of Iowa's small and mid-sized cities. In particular, we're going to discuss two small towns, Mount Pleasant and Olwine, as well as a mid-sized city, Clinton. Well, why would we do this? I don't know if any of you have ever been on the RAGBRAI, but really, what is one of the best parts about RAGBRAI? Obviously, it's the exercise. you got to like to bike. But for me, it's this opportunity to go through these small towns throughout Iowa. Sigourney, Washington, State Center, Garnavillo, and some mid-sized ones, too like Mason City, Fort Dodge, Burlington. These are the jewels of Iowa. And they're really one of our most precious assets. They got good infrastructure. They have solid, excellent education systems. They have a, they have a strong industrial base, usually situated in uh, ideal locations on a river and in, in centrally located throughout Iowa. But the question that they all confront is, is why aren't more people living there? And why are these towns continuing to struggle when they have such wonderful qualities about them? This is something we have to figure out, folks, because if we don't get this right, it's going to cause a lot of damage to the state because a lot of people are in pain in these cities. Not only are their economies struggling, but when economies struggle, people struggle too. Drug abuse increases. Crime rates go up. It affects the underlying political dynamic of the state. Churches close down. Houses of worship come apart. Bowling alleys close. These are the sorts of things that we have to address as a state. And so that's why I thought it'd be fun to explore both the struggles as well as the promise of these towns. As I said, I'm joined here by Greg Johnson. Hey, Rockney. Uh, good to be joining you on RockneyCast today. Greg is a true renaissance man. He runs the resourcesforlife.com website. He's an entrepreneur. He found he's a, one of the leading founders of the tiny house movement. And he is just an all-around great guy. And I tell you what, if you need any tech work, Greg is your guy. That's Greg Johnson. And although today's focus is just going to be on Clinton, as well as Olwine and Mount Pleasant, a lot of the lessons that we learn from these towns, I think, are going to apply to these other terrific small and medium-sized cities that we have at this grade. And I refer to cities like Burlington, Muscatine, Fort Dodge, Marshalltown, Oskaloosa, Ottumwa, Keokuk, Fort Madison, and our river city, Mason City, hometown of Meredith Wilson. It's one of those things that you really can't understand why more people aren't moving to this great state of ours. You know, in 1980, the population of Iowa was about 2.9 million and a little more than 40 years later, we're at about 3.1 million. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the uh, empty highways that we have and the 
open skies, and that's because it's not too crowded here. But I do think that a lot of the country is really missing the boat, and we continue to see a brain drain, not only from with our young people as they leave these towns, but also for some of our retirees as they decide to relocate elsewhere. And I think there's a lot that we can do to reverse these trends. So that's something that Greg and I are going to discuss today to talk about not only what, is the, what are the existing assets of these great small and medium-sized um, towns, but more importantly, what can be done to both reaffirm the things that they're doing well and then also identify some things in the future we can get to sort of further catalyze growth in these towns because these are great towns. And by the way, just because I share some concerns about some of the directions that, that they face, these are great small towns. They have a wonderful professional class. They have good, solid workforce. They have great schools, great infrastructure. And some part of my recognition of those assets, I think more people should be living there and enjoying these great residents in places like Fort Dodge because they are great cities. And I'm really excited to sort of promote and assess how we can really improve these cities. So, Greg, I'd sort of throw it back to you in terms of one of the cities that you're most familiar with is Clinton. And you've personally experienced Clinton and just sort of give our audience What's so great about Clinton? What, what was your impression of Clinton when you were able to visit Clinton recently? Yeah, I would go to Clinton on and off making visits to Clinton since uh, really the 1980s and have had family living there, um, not currently, but you know over the past few decades. And so what I found there was that during the boom and even during the bust that it was a place, you know, a 90-minute drive from Iowa City, but a place that I would enjoy going to, not just to see family, but to do things around the area. There's some great parks in the area. Clinton is one of the uh, wonderful river towns that you go up and down the Mississippi River and you see these uh, towns that have had peaks and valleys in their, you know, economic uh, boom and bust uh, circumstances because of whether it's logging or some, you know, industry that had been big at one time using the river. Um, but anyway, it's one of those river towns. So there's the beauty of the river, their bike paths, their great little shops, you know, coffee shops and that kind of thing. And for a long period of time, I was going there to attend an AME, African Methodist Episcopalian church that was just wonderful and, you know, great music, friendly people, uh, and a, a good social time after the church service. Um, so there were just many intersections with people and businesses in Clinton, and I did some tech work there, but not too much. Uh, there uh, is also this opportunity that small towns have in that they're a smaller scale, so you can do big things on a relatively low budget. If you want to have bike trails going throughout your town, you know, that's not too difficult if you are a smaller town, whereas a bigger city has to probably plan that over a number of years. And um, anyway, I guess those are some initial thoughts about Clinton. I think really what makes these towns so incredible, it, it, I think it also mirrors places like Marshalltown, Fort Dodge, what I really encourage our listeners to do, and this is something that after the COVID 
pandemic, Greg and I are, we're going to do some exploring of these small towns and we're going to report back to you and do some video. Did you know that you're going to do that, by the way, Greg? <laughs> I just found out, but that sounds like a great time. And there's so much to share visually through the podcast. Yeah, and so we're going to do some adventures where we're going to actually explore some of these small towns and get a feel of how awesome they are. As our mayor in Iowa City says, how awesome and amazing these places are. So let me take you to what you'd observe in a downtown like Clinton. The first thing that you will observe is that you will observe great bones of the downtown. And by that I mean is that regardless of how many storefronts are empty, what you're likely to see in all of these great mid-sized cities are great bones. So what do I mean by that? You go to the downtown and you will see something that a maker or an artist or a innovator would pay millions for in the city of Iowa City. What you're likely to see in these small towns are great bones to the downtown. So you'll see two and three story brick buildings, storefront below, residential above. In Iowa City, a place like that would sell for two to three million dollars. In some of these mid-sized to small towns, you might be able to purchase a property like that for two or three hundred thousand. These are called live-work opportunities, where you can have retail on the bottom floor and you can have essentially live upstairs. For a lot of young people, that's sort of where it's at. If you want to launch a coffee shop, if you want to launch a tech firm, if you want to do essentially a studio space, these are dream opportunities. And a lot of the buildings are still in relatively good shape. They're brick, they're well-made. Uh, the, primary, the primary obstacle is, is you have to, sometimes you have to renovate. I think that's maybe where some state funding could, could come in to help that. But then you look to the, the rest of the downtown and what you see are classic downtowns circa the 1900s, where you have these narrow streets, you have walkable infrastructure. So that's the first thing that you observe. And then as you radiate from those downtowns like you'd see in Clinton, you see these beautiful historic neighborhoods with the grid network that are relatively close to the downtown. You'll see all different housing types, ranches, mansions, beautiful old Queen Anne's, and these are perfect for people that love historic properties. And a lot of these areas like Clinton, those historic neighborhoods are a little bit run down. And they're not well populated as they should be because in other places throughout the United States, people would literally give their right arm to live in neighborhoods like this, where you're walkable to downtown and you are close to the art scene. And where you do see places like this renew are when they're relatively close to high population centers like Minneapolis or Iowa City, where there's the population density to really help launch those communities. So those are, they have great assets, but it's not only their downtowns. Most of these cities like Clinton, like Mason City, still have excellent education systems. So you're also likely to see if the funding is up there, strong neighborhood historic schools, excellent public high schools, and excellent educational infrastructure. And added to that, you're likely to see strong community colleges for technical education. Plus, you'll see industrial areas that are just ready 
for additional investment and opportunity to launch new industry. So you have these cities with great infrastructure, and yet they're continually declining for the last 30 to 40 years. And so that really sort of begs the question, is that decline inevitable? One of the most disappointing things that I really observed politically is when we had a recent gubernatorial election. Fred Hubble was the lead presidential candidate, and he had a lot of money. And he really didn't articulate anything related to the struggles of those mid-sized cities at all. He didn't identify any coherent or compelling economic strategy, and he basically just viewed it as inevitable. So I think one of the things we really need to identify, Greg, is if we're going to identify these, and the other thing about these towns is, is you could almost double the population. Like, for example, Marshalltown. I have a really good friend in Marshalltown. It's about 25,000. You could easily double or triple the population of these places, and you wouldn't even know the difference. That's how much capacity they have and infrastructure they have. They're all basically designed all the city leaders that designed these towns, you could tell they really dreamed of being big industrial cities. And they did get some industry, but once those industries left, you have, you have rail, you have water, you have an educated workforce, and you also have an incredibly motivated workforce. Is that decline inevitable? I think the answer to that is absolutely not. There are things that can be done. Now, there are some national trends that are sort of beyond our ability to um, control. We can't control our national trade policy. We can certainly vote for politicians. But what can we do in the state of Iowa to reverse these trends? I think one of the things we really need to do is we need to focus on protecting our existing institutions. Greg, I think one of the Biggest news stories that got a little bit of play, but it really didn't get as much play as it should have. Did you follow at all the struggles of Iowa Wesleyan uh, in the past couple of years in the city of Mount Pleasant? I didn't. No, tell me about that. So Iowa Wesleyan is a longtime liberal arts college that is located in uh, Mount Pleasant, Iowa. And about a year ago, there was an article in the Cedar Rapids Gazette indicating that Iowa Wesleyan was on the ropes. They didn't know whether they were going to be able to make it by the end of the year. And the question is, when you get a college like Iowa Wesleyan, or in Clinton they had something called Ashland University, and that is something that I think eventually closed. When you get those sorts of educational institutions, you just let them go. Or do you find a way to utilize those spaces to have renewal and protect those communities. Now for Mount Pleasant, which is a town of about 10,000, Iowa Wesleyan is still sort of plugging along, but do we just let them go? Imagine the impact that that would have on the community in terms of the teachers, the workers there, the students, the educational impact. Well, the example I would use, Greg, is in the state of Wisconsin, they have post-secondary institutions of higher education throughout the state in places like Whitewater, in places like Platteville. These institutions were put in place to ensure that the educational infrastructure was embedded throughout the state. So you didn't only see one massive campus at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It's a university educational system. 
And one of the things I think the state of Iowa really needs to do, and they need to do it yesterday, is two things. We need to expand the University of Iowa beyond Iowa City. And two, we need to expand Iowa State University in our northwest and our southwest quadrants of the state of Iowa. And the way, the way we would do that is in a place like, for example, Mount Pleasant, is that imagine if you were to put, for example, physical therapy or nursing education or post-secondary education and partner with Iowa Wesleyan. What would that do? That would provide such a lifeline to that city to really make it dynamic and to really sort of provide the seeds for its renewal. If you take that away, what kind of impact does that have on that community? So what's, what's your response to that, Greg, in terms of a possible solution? Obviously, it's going to cost a lot of money, but I think that is something that is going to really help connect the state of Iowa to its regents, institutions. I think really we, we, we really have lost that connection, and I think it's done a lot of damage because Iowa City, we're thriving. Where does that leave the rest of the state? Well, that's a great, a great example, and we see that done in California, and you mentioned Wisconsin, and even in Iowa to some extent, with Kirkwood Community College. And these satellite locations uh, really make whatever's being offered, and, and I'll just give another example would be we see branch offices of banks, you know, the, what used to be the University of Iowa Credit Union, which is now Green State, you know, banks that have satellite offices um, and hospitals that have not just the one big hospital, but these satellite care centers. So anytime we can distribute out into our broader communities and into the state, the access to healthcare, education, work uh, opportunities, everybody benefits. And that's what we lose sight of is in the inner cities, for example, you hear about K-12 schools being shut down because somebody somewhere on a profit loss sheet decided that, you know, that wasn't serving uh, enough and that they just need to close down a bunch of schools. I mean, that we don't close down roads and libraries. You know, there's certain infrastructure to society that just needs to be in place. And I think you're right. If we were to move, uh, if the university were to follow the example of, of Kirkwood, you know, it would really help. And it, people that come to the University of Iowa, they don't really care where they're physically positioned. You know, if it's the University of Iowa campus in Mount Pleasant, they're still going to be in a dorm. They're still going to walk on campus. They're still going to walk to a classroom and they'll go to a coffee shop. You know, it, they're not at home anyway. They're visiting this campus. So the campus could be spread across the state of Iowa and would allow people to get to see a, a little bit more of Iowa. And just a step back to something you mentioned previously, which I thought was very uh, insightful, is that you go to these places in Iowa City, like the North Side neighborhood or the Peninsula neighborhood. I remember being in the Peninsula neighborhood and seeing these two-story buildings and a little coffee shop and restaurant. There's like a commercial area in the middle. And I thought, oh, this is just so innovative. This is so cutting edge. This is so... And then, of course, realizing, oh, oh, we're just recreating a small town, a small Iowa town. We're just building it right here in Iowa City. Why are we building small Iowa towns on empty fields, why don't we use the small Iowa towns that we already have? Yeah, you're right. Greg, think about all these families 
to pay all this money to go to Disney World. Well, what's the first thing you see at Disney World? You see Main Street USA. What was that modeled on? Marceline, Missouri. And if you look at a lot of our small towns, it's just like Disney World. And yet, a lot of these places are empty. So I want our listeners, we're going to have a field trip. And one of the things I want our listeners to do is I want them to explore some of our small towns in a place like Sigourney, Iowa. Have you ever been to Sigourney, Greg? I have probably ridden through on a bicycle during Ragbri. <laughs> Let me share the vision of Sigourney. Sigourney is about 2,200 people. It's not a very big city. You go down to the main street, and it has this beautiful town square. And you look 360 degrees throughout this town square, and you see two- and three-story buildings, and most of them are either underutilized... Some are, some are occupied, and some are, are empty. Now, for Sigourney, hopefully if the city of Iowa City can grow enough, Sigourney may have an evolution similar to Solon, which is a very dynamic small town just because it's sheer proximity to Cedar Rapids and Iowa City, that they may experience sort of this renewal 20 to 30 years down along the road where you'll see those high-end restaurants, those cafes, those studio art galleries, sort of the prospects of renewal, upscale lofts. These are the sorts of things that really provide opportunity. Now, a lot of times people worry about, well, are we really just going to then, you know, strive for development for the elites? And, and I think that abs absolutely that is not the primary concern here because a lot of these places are empty. What they need is, is investments. And what, what can really catalyze that? And I think in part, it's making sure that you're protecting the existing institutions. And I think there are policy choices. You know, I had a really good uh, conversation with a friend of mine, actually, about the plight of rural Iowa. And his view was, you know what? There's really nothing that can be done about it. You just sort of have to let it go and just sort of throw up our hands. And I just completely reject that view. Because if you look at why these places were successful in the first place, it was because of public policy. They did see growth. And that growth, you know, as I said in one of our previous podcasts, it started declining in about 1978, 1980. And you see it in Clinton. It was a result of public policy choices. We can reverse a lot of these decisions. Let me share one example of another really dynamic city. I'm serious. It's really good. But it's struggling. The city of Olwine. Old Wine, I used to play them at football and basketball. My hometown is Decorah. It's a town of about 7,000 located in southern Fayette County in northeast Iowa. And as you approach Old Wine, you see this beautiful green industrial park they have right connected to a rail line. And you're thinking, wow, when the town fathers laid this town out, they were thinking about future economic growth and opportunity for their town. And like a lot of these other bigger communities, it has great bones to it. Greg, do you know what a post-industrial legacy space is? You know what that is? No, but it sounds like a great term. I imagine some sort of wasteland. <laughs> yeah. Well, post-industrial legacy space, you see a lot of them in Omaha. A beautiful brick, for example, meatpacking facility that then's repurposed for studio artwork or computer programming or lofts. 
They have really great bones. We don't have a lot of them in the city of Iowa City. But if you go to downtown Owine, they're all over the place. <laughs> there are a lot of them. And you're thinking to yourself, and some of them have broken windows, and you're thinking, gosh, isn't there any way that this could be catalyzed into something really remarkable? But Olin is a town that has really struggled. But let me share one public policy decision that I think could change the future of a place like Olwine. As you drive into the city of Olwine, there is a math and education center that's clearly some sort of state community college education enterprise. It's located about five miles outside of town. So what's the problem with that? Is that all the students, all the economic activity, you go right there, but they don't come out of that educational institution and they can't integrate with the rest of the community. Now, it can be easier said than done, but when you're in a place like Olwine, where they don't have a lot of uh, businesses downtown, they got to figure out how to put those educational institutions closer to proximity to the downtown businesses to spur their economic activity. That's a choice. Let me share one other public policy choice that in some respects is a, is a result of our tax policy. A lot of our educational institutions are consolidating. And so that leads to high schools that are consolidating. And where do they go? So if you have two towns and they're consolidating their high schools, a lot of times what they'll decide to do is build a new high school out in the middle of nowhere between the two towns. Same problem. Everyone drives there. There's no additional activity. And it doesn't really create a sense of place in the actual town itself. One example I would say is that every year my daughter goes to Iwalu Bible Camp. Well, just outside of Iwalu Bible Camp, there's a, a Stormont High, Starmont High School, and it's located just at this intersection in the middle of a cornfield. Well, these are public policy choices that we make, and it doesn't create a sense of identity for the town of Strawberry City. So I think it's something we have to figure out because we just cannot afford to have this continuing decline um, forever, and we really need to figure out how we're going to actually, you know, innovate in a lot of these 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 great towns that are struggling and really shouldn't. They all have great bones. Yeah, and I think some of that could happen naturally. You know, that as people start moving from the suburbs to the places I keep bringing up, the North Side, Iowa City, but they they start to realize, oh, that's a better quality of life if I'm working and shopping and and you know having my home all within a few blocks, uh, and they start seeking that out in Iowa City, and then they realize that that's available in other places. And the COVID-19 uh, staying at home situation that we're in right now, people that have been living in what are considered like suburbs or bedroom communities of Iowa City, whether that's West Branch or I know people that commute to Iowa City for work from Tipton, you know, 30, 45-minute drives coming in from all over, those small towns are viewed as a place where you go to get, you know, buy an inexpensive home and you sleep there, but you get your groceries and other things in Iowa City and you work in Iowa City. Well, now people aren't coming into Iowa City. They're staying in their small town because now suddenly um, there are jobs in these small towns. That's the job that you've always had, but you're working from home, you know. So um, what's to stop people from working for, you know, Google and Apple, for example, have employees that work remotely from home. Uh, why couldn't people live in any of these small Iowa towns 
and have a good income and, and have things to do in the community. A lot of communities are reviving the old downtown theater. Uh, there, there are a lot of you know, initiatives being made, the bike paths, the parks, the things that are being done. And, and as you mentioned, these empty commercial spaces, you'll see that in places like Des Moines or even in Cedar Rapids in the Nouveau a district, that the older buildings are being repurposed sometimes to lead certification standards, um, and uh, it's a cool vibe, you know, and, and there's revitalization that happens. Yeah, and you know, I have a really good friend, and he's from the um, state of California. And one interesting trend that I think we're starting to experience, but we really haven't had in mass, is this question of, you know, Californians, they're paying, in some cases, half a million dollars for an 800-square-foot shack. And a half a million dollars, especially in some of these areas in the middle of Iowa, are going to get you an absolute mansion, and so it's really surprising. You know, obviously we don't have the mountains, we don't have the coast. Those are obviously, and of course the weather's an issue. So I think those are three structural impediments that we have. But we do have the low crime, we do have the strong schools, we do have the clean air, we do have the quality of life. So I, I'm not Richard Florida. There, there's huge Richard Florida fans. Some are huge fans. Some are sort of a little bit more of a mixed bag. But I do think that there is, in Richard, Florida, for those of you who didn't know, his whole view is is the way in which, and he's written a lot of books on this, is the way in which um, cultural institutions, the arts, theater, dance, are, are essential to the drivers of economic growth. Some people push back on that saying, hey, yeah, you see that in Pittsburgh. That's more just a function of the great universities that they have. That didn't really drive you're not really, it's correlation, not causation. But I do think, like, for example, I'm a stressed out San Franciscan, and I'm living in a million-dollar house that's about a 1,000 square feet. I have a three-hour commute, and I decide, where am I going to move? Am I going to move to Iowa? What would make me do that? And that, that's a very interesting question. And they most likely, if they did decide to make that choice, would probably come into a place like Iowa City or Des Moines. So it's probably unrealistic to expect them to come into Fort Dodge or Oskaloosa. Probably not super likely. But if you're an artist or you're a studio, um, a potter, and you get an opportunity for a makerspace for $300,000 that you could use the internet to essentially publicize what you're doing and you had some sort of artisan residence program, that might be something that you would consider. And I think that's something that we really have to evaluate is, is, is are there artistic programs that we can do as well to sort of get some of that vibe into these, into these towns? You know, one of my really good friends, Dave Moore, talked about the Iowa Arts Council in the 80s. They had a program that allowed a lot of emerging uh, folk singers, including people like Greg Brown, um, Ron, and Jody, Ron Clark and Jody Hovland of the local Riverside Theater, where they were able to do these little arts grants in a lot of small towns throughout Iowa and it allowed a lot of these artists to stay here. So I think it's not only a question of bringing people in, but I think it's also keeping our homegrown talent here so that they don't leave. Because I think there's a lot of people in these small towns thinking, I'd love to stay, but I, I, I just can't. I cannot find the opportunity here. And so are there ways in which we can keep these homegrown talent here so they don't get recruited elsewhere? Because it can be a mixed bag when you get... A whole bunch of people coming in from California 
that, that come in too quickly. And I think it can also build internal resentment here. But I think it's something we have to be able to figure out. Yeah, there's an example in Wisconsin, just over the river from us, in Mineral Point. There are dozens of artists who decided to make this, you know, small town that's off the beaten path suddenly has become a, a tourist destination. There are people from all over, from Chicago, coming to this small town in Wisconsin because you can walk up and down the street and see, uh, you know, dozens of different artists with paintings and pottery and all kinds of stuff. And the, the people there are fascinating, and they live above their, their stores or their studios. Uh, it, it's definitely a trip I'd recommend. Um, and you mentioned Decorah. You know, there's another... A small town that you wouldn't think of as being some tourist destination, but I've been told by people that there are some great uh, single-track bike trails and fat-tire bike riding opportunities um, in Decorah. And and so a number of these small towns, unless you're in the loop on it, um, unless one knows about these attractions, we, we wouldn't imagine that there's something there, and yet there's hundreds or thousands of people that go there like Pella has for their Tulip Festival. Yeah. And in terms of the public policy levers that we do have, one of the key economic levers that I think the state of Iowa has not taken the opportunity to do is the expansion of Medicaid. Because there are really two big employers in a lot of these regional uh, health centers. One relates to um, hospitals uh, and the other is a lot of educational institutions. So I think in terms of two immediate public policy levers that we do have, um, expanding the University of Iowa, and if we need to raise taxes to do that, I think that's a, an investment worth making, and, and we can find the money to make that happen. But secondly, related to the expansion of Medicaid, not only do we strengthen our hospital capacity, but we also strengthen that economic opportunity because every time that you add to the payroll, you add executives, you add people that are custodians, the nurses, the doctors, those are the people that sort of provide the essential infrastructure for the town that really keeps these towns going. And if we were able to expand Medicaid, the federal government would cover 90% of that expansion. So not only would we strengthen our healthcare system, but we would provide immediate economic benefit to a lot of these regional institutions. And one of the other issues related to the COVID crisis is there are benefits, obviously, to living in very dense spaces. But I think really what we're seeing is, is there's also peril with that. If we have all of our economic strategy regarding high-density living, we're not resilient in the sense that we really don't have um, backup public infrastructure in our rural and mid-sized places to sort of provide that additional resiliency. So I think in terms of expanding the healthcare opportunities, that is going to be really critical. Again, I think of a place like Clinton or a place like Newton, Iowa, or a place like even Mount Pleasant to get that capacity up so we're not only reliant upon the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics when we do have these sorts of disasters. So I think at our core, we really have to just sort of reject this notion that the state of Iowa cannot address these public policy challenges. Now, one of my pet peeves with some of our Republican lawmakers is they basically have one argument. We just need to lower taxes. And if that worked, I would be all for it. But typically, we have not seen, since they've dominated in terms of public policy, we've seen a continual public 
decline in a lot of these areas, it's not working. Because I don't think that's really what drives people to get to these places or to keep them there. Uh, their tax rate, it's of course one factor among many, but that's certainly not going to get it done. And the second part related to it is we certainly don't want people coming here because we have lower environmental standards. You know, one of the questions I always like to ask with friends since I served on city council at one point was, you know, what are the public policy challenges for your community? In one community in northwest Iowa, they basically said, well, there's a plant that processes animal parts and there's a really nasty smell in our community and the company pays the fine. It's cheaper for them to pay the fine on a daily basis than to abate the nuisance. So the other part that we're going to have to address is we're going to have to provide more home rule authority regarding industrial agriculture. Because some of these small and mid-sized towns are so immersed in the smell of industrial agriculture, they're never going to be able to grow if they're, if they're facing those sorts of challenges. So it's not only sort of what draws people, but also what's going to drive people away. And certainly if there's a big industrial ag, that's going to be a big problem. I don't know what you think, Greg. Yeah, that's, that's a challenge. And often there's the not-in-my-backyard mentality where these industrial farming operations end up in some small town that, as you say, if it's downwind of this plant, um, is not going to be a, a huge attraction. Uh, so anybody coming there for, you know, it's not going to be able to turn into that like arts destination or whatever because people are going to come there and it's, it's just kind of a turnoff, a bad smell. So that's the problem. Yeah, and the other part that we need, and it's not directly related to the mid-sized cities themselves, but it's sort of like when you have the Mississippi River, what does the Mississippi River has? It has a tributary shed that feeds into that river. Well, a lot of these mid-sized cities also depend upon the rural populations surrounding those that flow into those cities to go buy their goods and services. So the state of Iowa really needs to focus on a plan to protect the family farm and to prevent and to protect and to promote small size agriculture to the extent that we can. Because what we're seeing is, is the increasing, increasing scale of a lot of agriculture. And as a result of that, a lot of the small, mid-sized farms are being completely driven out. And it ends up being only a few huge operators can survive and no one else can essentially participate. Well, what's the downside of that? It really tears out the social fabric of a lot of these towns. Their city cafes go out of business. Their clothing stores go out of business. You don't have the population center. Your churches decline. Your bowling alleys decline. And so that's something that I think we really need to address. Because I think if you look at one of the original public policy victories, um, basically of the Republican Party, was the Homestead Act in the 1860s. Whereby, if you were able to stay on a farm for, for five years, you could get a 160-acre farm. And the amount of opportunity that that provided was really essential to populate a lot of our rural places. And after the New Deal, you also saw, saw a similar increase in a lot of these rural areas. And that's one of the reasons why, like Henry Wallace, the great progressive out of the state of Iowa, is he just rejected the view that rural decline was inevitable. There were things that we could do, and we could renew these places. 
And that's, that's even the basis of the Wisconsin idea. You know, we had mentioned expanding the University of Iowa and more branch class, branch class, um, university locations. That's precisely what the state of Wisconsin did. And look at, look at how dynamic a lot of their small and mid-sized cities are. It's because they have this infrastructure interspersed throughout the state of Wisconsin. And Minnesota does too, like Minnesota Morris. They got a lot of uh, they got a lot of liberal arts schools that are part of the state University of Minnesota educational institution, and I think we really need to think big in the state of Iowa. How do we really expand these institutions? Because if we don't do it, we're going to see a continuing social decline. And that was the original part of the the blog post by Professor Whiston, is that we simply cannot have this continuing decline in a lot of these small and mid-sized cities. Because what's the problem with that? We get the out-of-marriage births, high crime rates. We get huge drug rates. You know, one of the important things we're going to focus on in this podcast are different books that we would like our readers to, to take a look at. And the first recommendation I'd really recommend that they get is called Methland. The Death and Life of an American Small Town by Nick Redding. That's R-E-D-I-N-G. And he talks about the rise of methamphetamine in Olwine, which is a town that we had just talked about, and why it happened. And it didn't just happen out of nowhere. What happened, Greg, is that they had these um, high-paying jobs at the Iowa Ham packing plant that was ultimately sold to Tyson. Well, once the out-of-state company came in and started operating it, they basically busted the union, cut the wages in half. And so for the workers to be able to make the same amount of money that they did before, they would work double shifts. So instead of making working 40, 40 hours a week and making a certain wage, their wages were cut in half, so they worked two shifts. And in order to do it, they started using methamphetamine. And all the collateral damage that that caused to that community that, you know, obviously Olwine was not jumping for joy to be referred to as Methland, but he really hit on an important topic that the, this is a product of social decay in which the cost of doing nothing far exceeds the investment we make in terms of making sure that these places thrive. So these are our humble opinions on this, Greg, but it's something that we have to figure out because if we don't, um, we're in for a, a long struggle because part of the pain, this is something we talked about in one of our first podcasts, part of the reason we have Donald Trump is because of the pain that a lot of these residents are experiencing in terms of their life expectancy, in terms of their economic opportunity, in terms of the substance abuse. We have to, we have to do better and we have to believe that we can reverse that decline. Yeah, and I know, as you mentioned, that a lot of the resistance to expanding Medicaid or Medicare or expanding education opportunities or access to rural health care. There's always the concern about, well, won't it cost money? Won't taxes go up? And I, I'm always going back to this example of Tennessee that um, Bill Haslam, who was the former governor of Tennessee, and now it's under the care of Bill Lee, Governor Bill Lee, they uh, have this education program. And they started small. They said, first, we're going to give college education to everybody who's a recent graduate of high school. So it wasn't statewide for everybody. It was just for high school graduates. They saw such an incredible payback, return on investment, um, for what money they put into education and what came out of it. 
And I mean, it would be like you know investing in Bitcoin 10 years ago or something. They just went back to the drawing board. They said, we've got to get education to everybody. So then they offered it statewide to everybody. So you had people that were out of a job because such and such factory or plant closed down, but they just go to college, get retooled, and suddenly they're back in the workforce and they're not doing meth, you know, because they have a job and they have all that that entails. So um, sometimes it has to be phased in. You know, you start in little steps, but I think Iowa and public policy need to be in line with what these other states are doing and seeing benefits from. Well, the whole tax argument, that's why I think it's so... If, if our listeners have not had the opportunity to listen to episode two of the Rockney cast, I really encourage them to do that because one of the things I highlight in episode two, first 20 minutes assesses the impact of a reduction of taxes on the state GDP for the state of Kansas um, from 2012, approximately 2012 to 2016, and the damage that was done. And so if it were true that reducing taxes is, is always going like, to lead to significant economic growth, you just don't typically see that in practice because of the impact on the educational system, the infrastructure, um, the quality of life, the environment. These are things that cost money to administer. And if you look at whatever increase we would pay in taxes, if we could see a renewal of a lot of these rural areas, I think it would be a price worth paying. And again, if you look at when these areas really thrived, it was about the mid-1940s through the late 70s when we, when we did have higher taxes. And I'm not saying I want to raise those for everyone. But we need to identify additional revenue streams for a lot of these places because if we don't, I think we're going to have a substantial amount of damage. Because just doing nothing, in my view, is not an option. And related to that topic, Greg, you had brought up healthcare. Healthcare is something that is probably the biggest challenge for a lot of these rural places. And so the second book recommendation that I would recommend to our readers is called Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism by Anne Case and Angus Deaton. By the way, I love that name, Angus. Wouldn't you love to be named Angus, Greg? I got an unusual name, so I can give Angus a heart. Angus is probably more common than Rockney, so I shouldn't give him too hard a time. But they really deal, on, deal with what happens that capitalism has been this great system, but it has upsides and it has downsides. And in particular for um, a lot of working class people without a college degree, it has been incredibly damaging. And so I just commend our readers to, to read that book. One, of, one highlight of it in terms of the impact on a lot of our rural and mid-sized places is that the average cost of a family health care policy in 2019, you know what it was, Greg, approximately? Oh, maybe $700? Annually. Oh, oh, annually. Okay, yeah. Let's go with 10000 $21,000 is the average cost, Greg. The average cost for a single policy is $7,200 for private policies. But this has to be borne by someone. And this is really, and it's essentially like we're paying a tribute. This is according to this book, Deaths of Despair, nearly $8,000 to the healthcare industry. That's money that's directly taken out of our economy that we could be investing in our rural places. So it's a very complicated topic Gosh, Iowa, you know, I went back to our original uh, comment about Mason City. 
you know, River City. We are a place where dreams are made and, you know, prosperity will begin. And we need to do better in terms of making sure that these wonderful rural and mid-sized places can thrive just like our, our cities are doing pretty well. You know, the city of Iowa City, Cedar Rapids has seen great growth. I think some good tech growth. Des Moines with a really dynamic leadership. So I'd really tell a lot of our state congressional leaders, like, leave the bigger cities alone for now. I think they're doing really well. Um, Waterloo continues to do some struggling, um, so we can work with Waterloo, but they're at least close to the University of Northern Iowa. So hopefully that they'll have sort of good things in store for them. But we really need to figure this out because if we don't, we're in for a long, not so good ride. So that's something we definitely need to figure out. Well, that is something that we've going to have to follow up with a subsequent podcast. So listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, this is our fourth Rockney cast. We're going to have some really good episodes coming up. Uh, I'm going to do one on Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I think you will really love it. And we're going to continue to learn from one another and have a good time. And I thank you for all of our listeners for tuning into the Rockney cast. Remember, if you have any show suggestions or feedbacks, please send us an email at rockneycast at gmail.com. Thank you so much, Greg, for joining us today, and we'll look forward to future shows. Right. Great to be here again. Thanks, Rockney. Take care. Yeah.